Rise Up Chorus presents Meet the Musicians Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Lapine. Now, let's meet the musicians. Welcome to the seventh episode of Meet the Musicians Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Lapine, and I'm thrilled to be leading you through a musician's story. I am absolutely elated that today, I have the opportunity to sit down with one of the world's leading composers whose compositions have changed the face of choral music. His debut album as a conductor earned him a Grammy Award, and he's gone on to collaborate with leading choirs and orchestras around the world. Today's guest is none other than Eric Whitaker, and I am so happy that I have the opportunity to welcome him into our musical community. Eric, Welcome to Meet the Musicians podcast. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to be here. It's it, The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> so when did you first realize that you had an interest in, in music in general? Huh. Well, you know, I think like most musicians, I can't remember a time that I didn't think in music. You know, I can remember being three and four years old and... and Actually, a story that I don't remember, but my parents tell me about is that my grandmother had put uh, the Brahms Hungarian Rhapsodies on, you know, her old phonograph. She actually had a 78 and played that. And apparently I just ran around the living room screaming, like just this, it it lit up every Christmas tree in my brain. And I, I played by ear. I played piano by ear. My parents tried to give me piano lessons. I just didn't take them, but I started making my own music. I played trumpet in marching band. In middle school and high school, I got kicked out for insubordination, but I still never learned to read music. It was always by ear. And then somewhere in, I was 13, 14 years old, uh, I joined the computer club at school and I learned to program in the basic language on Commodore 64. And, and around that time, because of that, I discovered computer music. So Kraftwerk and Tangerine Dream and Depeche Mode and Pet Shop Boys. And that was it. For my entire high school career, I was obsessed with synth pop and synth film scores. And I had synthesizers, drum machines. That's the music that I made. And when I was 18, that's genuinely what I thought I was going to do with my life was go and be a pop star, I guess. And, um, and then I, uh, on a whim, joined choir at university, at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I grew up in Nevada. And a single rehearsal changed my life and and we're we're here today talking that's incredible so that was your first experience in a choir wasn't until your undergraduate huh that's right i I had seen choirs when i was in high school you know and and we had a madrigal group and so any of your listeners who have been in one of those you know they wore the henry the eighth outfits and you know saying madrigals and i just at 18 i was like no that's that is definitely not for me um, and that's what I thought choir was. And I went to that first rehearsal, uh, and the first piece we sang was the Requiem by Mozart, specifically the Kyrie, which is the second movement. And I, I remember just standing in the middle of the room, just trembling. I wasn't singing, just overcome by the sound of a hundred people singing in counterpoint, cosmic counterpoint around me. I was, I was transformed, utterly transformed. And I left that rehearsal, the world's biggest choir geek. I just, I couldn't get enough. I still can't get enough of it. So do you still dabble in the electronic music world? Yeah, I listen to it all the time. Um, it's funny that you, that you say dabble because, because of COVID and being here, uh, um, this is the longest stretch since I started doing this 30 years ago that I haven't traveled. 
it's nearly a year that I haven't even left Los Angeles. And like all of us now, I'm becoming intimately acquainted with all the electronics, you know, and the cameras and the, the zoom and the microphones and the, the recording setup. And so because of that, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to buy old eighties synths. you know, it's like, okay, what can I do? You know, like, yep. Now we'll have an actual profit five. So there's a part of me, I don't even know where I'll, any of this will go. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, of course the world really needs a vintage synth and choral album. That's definitely, of course, that's, 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 that's the next <laughs> frontier. So we'll see where it goes. But I'm, I'm at this point, I'm just dabbling. So when you were younger, uh, you said you, you were playing, you played trumpet, you played piano by ear. What role did your parents have in cultivating this love of music? Mm, it's a good question. My mother, who is an artist, a painter, uh, was endlessly supportive. And she's the one who tried to get me piano lessons. And w when I had my little pop group in high school, she would drive me to every performance and help me carry equipment. She was kind of my biggest fan and cheerleader. My father, uh, and I say this with great respect, just didn't get it at all. He uh, this it couldn't be further from his reality he's not a musician or an artist he just thinks differently and I think like most parents he was just concerned about me being able to provide for myself one day and probably looked at the life of a music and thought that's not uh, that's not that's, that's not a, a, um, a wise option and so it, my dad was late to the to the game of support it wasn't until I was actually probably wasn't until I was accepted to the Juilliard school uh, for my master's degree that he said okay this is actually happening. And now, to give him credit, he's, he couldn't be more supportive. He's probably my biggest fan. That's, sometimes it just takes you, you just have to prove yourself a little bit, just a little bit. And, and even the biggest non-believer will become a believer, won't they? I think that's it. And especially now I'm a parent. I've got a 15-year-old son and a two-month-old son. And there's this parental instinct that kicks in. You just want your kids to be okay. You want them to be able to take care of themselves. And on paper, you look at the life of a musician or an artist, especially, you know, trying to explain to my dad, yes, I'm going to go make a life in music writing for choir. It, it just, that seems like a bad idea, right? And so th there's an instinct in you that just says, uh, at least get a business degree so you have something to fall back on, right? Like, I, I totally understand where the instinct right. is coming from. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, for me, I have three children, nine, six, and three. And it's always that balance, right? As a professional musician, it's always that balance between, okay, let, let's let's do something musical and okay, let's back off. Where where did you stand as a parent on all this? If, so it's really interesting. Right now, my son, the 15-year-old, is a, a jazz bassist. And, you know, to be proud cool. for a minute, he's... Yeah, he's got some real game. Like he's got, uh, he's just got talents way beyond what I think I have. And um, that being said, I'm a musician and I, I understand kind of the, the, the business of music, at least from my own perspective. And jazz bassist is, you know, like that's, that's, it's, it's not a hyper employable job, right? There's, there's not a lot of right. openings for jazz bassist. And so I feel it in myself even thinking like, Okay, but but what I the only thing I have to fall back on is that at the end of the day you've got to follow your heart, right? If something mm. if something ignites that fire in him, then then your job as a parent is to is to is to foster that, is just to help fan the flame, 
and he'll figure out where that needs to go or where that's going to go. So, so that's it. I've, I've been really hands-off for most of his life. I tried to give him piano lessons, tried to give him cello lessons. He didn't want anything to do with lessons. I had to laugh and think, okay, this is payback for my parents. Um, mm-hmm. And just let mm-hmm. him take his own time. And now I'm really just trying to encourage this. Okay, I see this is what you want to do, so let's, let's, let's see if I can help. So he's thinking about a possible career path? Yeah, you know, he's 15, so, he, you know, he, he also, right, he's also totally. thinking about being a professional video gamer, so uh, who knows career? Hey, there's something but, there. There's something there is there. something, I know, which is an amazing thing to say. Like, you know, he's got friends who are starting to make, their, their summer jobs are being YouTubers. It's how they make their living, and I just, uh, it's, it's a brave new world. <laughs> but, um, it sure is. <laughs> but, but in terms of, of um, what lights him up, it's, yeah, he loves playing bass. So, okay, let's, let's, uh, just, let's follow that and tell that either lead you to something else or, or lead you to your path. You know, you mentioned video games. Have you ever thought about composing for video games or have oh. you ever been approached? I would love to. I would love, love, love to. I think video, game, video games in general are the next artistic frontier. I think already where they're at, but where they're going, I think that I could very easily see them either eclipsing or standing right alongside the greatest films we have in, in, you know, just in terms of an artistic expression and a, a, a journey that it takes the, the player or the, the viewer on. I would love to do it. Um, I've had a couple of conversations and never the right fit. But, oh, yeah, if, if the right project came along, I'd, I'd jump both feet into the deep end of the pool. Well, yeah, the way that, you know, you can be in these huge, seemingly endless worlds and the way the music transitions from one thing to another, the programming involved, besides just the compositional aspect, it, it's just, it's so brilliant. It's so yeah, brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, and the people who do it really well, right, it's, it's stunning how beautifully they do it. And one of the things that I love about video games is that it's, it's based all in iconography, right? That, that mm. this means something and this means something. And, then, and that's exactly how I think about music. It's how I write music, that every chord and every note is there for an, an iconic reason, right? It, that it's self-referential and that it, it develops its own little language. And so I would love the opportunity to, to dance with the, what's happening on screen with the music that way. You know, it's evident when, when I'm performing one of your pieces with one of my ensembles and, and I'm doing score study, I can tell that every single note that you write is intentional. I mean, it, it's evident. Whereas you might go through other pieces of music and they have a chord in mind and they just kind of voice it the way that it kind of makes sense theoretically. But yeah. you have an intention for every note. When, when did you find yourself in your life to be so start to be so picky about music like that. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, the, the truth is it's, it's even before I started writing classical music, even when I was writing pop music, I, it's, I, I don't know how else to do it. I, um, it's just, just for myself. If, if I'll, I'll, let's, let's go back even further. I'm not a religious person. I'm not an atheist, but I'm not a religious person. But I remember when I first got to, classical music history, and we learned about sacred music and secular music. And it never made any sense to me. I remember thinking all music is sacred, right? Even, even 80s pop songs, are, there's, there's a sacredness to them. There's this elevated language. There's this opportunity at every moment to transform or to, to um, reveal these deeper truths. And so 
even back when I was in high school writing these little computer pieces, the notes were all there for some reason, right? And then later on, as I refined it, I, I think what I started making was what I call snow globes. The idea that there's a complete world with inside this snow globe where, where there's a governing principle and all of the rules uh, uh, are, are in, in harmony with each other, right? So, so that, that the entire piece holds together uh, based on this governing principle. Sorry, this is super abstract, but... Um, no, it I makes think, sense. Yeah, and I think the reason I do that is because that's the way the natural world it has unfolded, that we can look at the universe and see that the entire universe seems to be governed by a few simple, strict laws, and all things dance within that. And so I think the creation of music or any kind of art is just a reflection of the beauty of the natural world. That, 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 that makes total sense. It's less abstract than you think. And, and I would almost argue that when I'm, you know, thinking about your body of work, each piece of music or collection of music or, or cycle or whatever it is, that snow globe has a slightly different shape than the previous. Wouldn't you say your, your set of rules changes? And, and for, for me, as someone performing your music, I'd want to know, is that because of the intent of the piece or do you think some of that's how you change throughout time? Such a good question. I would say both. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like looking at my body of work that, that each piece, some of them sound, they've got similar sound worlds, but to me they're dramatically different because as you said, like if, if, if I'm setting a poem to, to music, then the poem is going to dictate where this thing goes and some of the governing principles of the, of the piece. And so that dance with what the poem is and wants to be changes the, the little world that's inside. And then right alongside that is who I'm becoming as, as I grow older. And it's not just that, that, that how my life is changing me, but how the discipline of composition is changing me. Um, I, I'm one of these people that has a hard time focusing and I'm insatiably curious. I'm looking here to here to here to here, you know, at any given time during the day, it's like, I'm giving it all up to go become a sous chef. Nope. It's archery. That's what it, Oh no, no medicine. I think I'll be a doctor. <laughs> like I just, I'm fascinated by things and, and classical composition requires a focus and discipline that I don't have naturally. This, this Quincy Jones said it best that, that writing a piece of music is like painting with a Q-tip. It's so meticulous and, and exacting. And I think that over the years, that, that process has polished me like a stone in a river. And I think that's hyper-influenced the way each of these pieces now unfolds. The discipline itself has changed me. You know, it's interesting you, you talk about that compositional process that way. Composing music is so different than creating any other type of art, right? Visual art. It's, it's not necessarily appreciated in real time. Uh, a, a, a novel, it's, it's appreciated in the time of a reader. Some people read incredibly quickly, some other people don't. A piece of music has a, has a set pace, it has a set feel, it has a set momentum, but you're not composing it necessarily in that feel and in that momentum. So you have an opportunity to step back and, okay, wait, what do I want to do within this? 
and really create some incredible detail that's then lived a very specific way. Yeah, that's it. And it's such a strange endeavor. I, I do this thing. Most of my compositional process is planning before I write the music. And I call it emotional architecture. And I make these drawings, oftentimes before I write a note of music, that, that sort of are depictions of what I hope the emotional journey of not only the audience, but the performers goes on. That how they begin, where it takes them, the, the climax or the epiphany, and then the, the denouement, the, the, uh, the catharsis at the end, right? The, the, this change. And, and mm. all of that is, like you say, from a 35,000 foot view. Like, like you're, you're sort of planning an experience for a whole bunch of people. And it's very much like, like architecture, where you're drawing incredibly detailed blueprints for someone who's going to build a thing. But then, as you say, it unfolds then in real time. These blueprints are something that just unfolds. I, when I talk about it even out loud, I just can't believe it works. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that, that the, the way we make music actually works, you know, that you can. And then I think about some of the absolute masters of the craft you know, Bach and Debussy and Prokofiev and, and the way Stravinsky, the, the way they build these blueprints that are so detailed and so inventive and so self-referential. And then you give this to this group of disparate players and just go and this thing unfolds, which is, it's working on so many levels, so profound. Um, I, I, I'm biased, of course, but I think there are very, very few human disciplines that are as abstract and as elevated as classical composition done at a super high level. And and last thing I want to say about that is I want to be very clear. I don't think I'm doing it at a very high level. But but Stravinsky, Bach, those people are doing it at a very high level. Oh, I think a hundred years from now, everyone will have your name right next to theirs yeah, as well. I it's you're way too kind. Um yeah. Way, way, <laughs> so, way too kind. I love that you mentioned that when you were young, Brahms was kind of what, as you said, lit up the Christmas tree in your brain. And Brahms, for me, it was the same thing. When I was a kid, Brahms' Fourth Symphony, for oh. you, the uh, Hungarian dances. I just, I heard it, you know, the Fourth Symphony by accident, I guess. I got a hold of a cassette tape and I listened to it and there was something about it that just brought me in. But besides the music itself, there were people along the way who really made a difference in my life musically. For you, who were those people? Mm. So there's one person. Uh, there were lots of people along the way, but the, the one person who, who totally changed the direction of my life was a man named David Weiler. So David Weiler was the choir director and still is at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's in his 35th year now, I think. And... I had auditioned for a music scholarship, which I didn't get. You know, I just, I was starting at, at, at university and he heard me play the piano, just auditioning in front of this group of people. It was funny because they asked me to play something from my repertoire. I didn't even know what the word repertoire meant. <laughs> and so God knows what I played for them. But he then immediately took me across to his room and said, why don't you try singing this thing? And he auditioned me and he realized that I couldn't read music, but I had a decent ear. And for all the choir directors out there, they'll appreciate this, that I was a guy and I was alive. 
right? <laughs> that's step one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, right. That's actually step one through eight for any aspiring. That's true. You know, choir, direct, right, choir directors just trying to pull people. It would have been even better if I were a tenor. You know, you can hear my voice is low, but but that's right. you're just looking for a, a breathing body who sings low oftentimes. And so he invited me into choir, and that utterly changed me. I mean, really, like I said, there was there was my life before that first rehearsal and the life after. And then I spent seven years singing in David's choirs. And so wow. I, so my conception of music and choral music is, is because of him and the way he saw it. Then, uh, when I was 22 years old, he started me conducting. And I had no business conducting. I was starting to read music then. I was getting better at it. But I knew nothing about conducting. I just was just eager and could get other people to be eager with me. And he set me on this life of conducting as well. Um, and finally, I wrote my first piece for him, this little piece called Go Lovely Rose. It's the reason I started writing choral music. I was 21, wow. and I, in the third year of my seven-year undergraduate degree, I finally got accepted into the little chamber choir that he also conducted. And they had this tradition of, set, of singing a different musical setting of Go Lovely Rose. So I wrote him his own. And not only did he perform it, which I really wasn't expecting, he performed it at this conference that we got invited to sing at, and in the audience was a publisher who heard it and immediately published the piece. So, so David Weiler is for me that, that North Star. He, he's the, the teacher who, who, yeah, who un revealed my life to me in a way that I, I just couldn't have imagined. Wow. 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 That's so beautiful how it just worked. And, and, and it's funny how circumstances had to be just right in order for everything to blossom. You know, yeah, if you had gone to any other school, if you hadn't happened to walk into that rehearsal room, if you, everything just kind of worked out. Yeah, it's really true. It's, I, I feel so grateful when I think about it that way. Also, maybe it's just the way we experience the past, but I also feel there's this profound inevitability, you know, that somehow, some way, that's where I was going to go. I thought I was going to be in pop music, but actually I think my mind was just hungry for this other thing and didn't, didn't have a name for it. But had I not met David, God knows where I would be right now. It would be a completely different world for me. Mm. Uh, are, besides David, are there any musicians that you look up to or that you would like to emulate? Maybe there are composers that you want to, that you uh, hold in the highest regard and would like to, I want to be like them. You mean like Bach or Stravinsky, like that, or you mean sure, musicians? Yeah, or, or living and and any. I'm I'm curious to know well, where well, your mind goes with this. Let's let's start with Bach because <laughs> I think sometimes when I when I talk about Bach in this glowing way, people who know my music really well are surprised by that because I generally approach music in a different way than Bach approaches music, which is to say, liquidy and uh, a lot of homophonic sounds and, and anyway just I, I think I, I think most people associate Bach with counterpoint and me less so but what what I can't believe about Bach after having done all of this is that he makes these pieces that are so elegant uh, we talked about not a note being wasted right every mm -hmm. note is there for a reason but then they can be minimalist, so just, just a two-part invention, right? The left hand is playing one note at a time, the right hand is playing another note at a time. Or they can be maximalist, an eight-part motet with double choir just weaving in and out of each other. And still you have that same 
that same uh, principle, which is that there's no wasted notes. Everything is there for a reason. Every line is ergonomic and almost just superhumanly designed. And then besides the, the, the singular brilliance of his music, he wrote so much of it. So I write incredibly slowly. I agonize over even a small choral piece will take me months and months. Actually, the truth is it takes me as long as I have, right? So if the deadline is May 22nd, 2040, <laughs> I'll finish May 21st, 2040. <laughs> but Bach somehow was churning out these pieces. You know, he every week he's writing a new motet and then a Christmas oratorio. Oh yeah, that's right. And then he took these commissions for, you know, some Brandenburg yep. charity. Oh, and then he also wrote, you know, the Well-Tempered Clavier as for a patron, you know, like just crazy, like, and, and it's the, the sheer volume of music that he writes and the level that he writes at is just incomprehensible to me. And so when you, when you talk about a musician that I look up to, and then the final thing I'll say about Bach is that I don't know how to write music that doesn't have meta meaning to it. And what I mean by that is, um, God, I mean, every single thing. So uh, I wrote a little piece called The Boy and a Girl. And and there's this little musical game that gets played between the altos and sopranos. They're always a second apart from each other, right? And they kind of dance through the whole piece. And the idea in my mind was the sopranos are the girl and the altos are the boy. And from the very first chord, they hold hands and then they go through this life together, just dancing and and weaving. And sometimes they, they leave each other for just a moment and then they come back. And even in death, at the end of this little four-minute piece, they're together, they're holding hands. Okay, I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's just the only way I know how to do this. Bach somehow seems to revel in just the relationship of notes to notes, it, right? It's more abstract than that. Now, he definitely had some iconography where he spelled out his name or you, you can see the mm -hmm. cross, the crucifix, right, in the music itself. But in general, it's just, he's just like this exuberance over look what notes can do when they when they work together in this, like a, like a Swiss watch. And I don't know how to do that. I, I literally don't know how to write like that. And so I, I really sit with wonder and awe at that part of it as well. You know, I, he also had an incredible way of text painting in, in his own way. When you look at some, the B minor mass, the way he writes things in in the in the cradle, for example, just everything is just it it tells a story. When you look at uh, Saint John Passion, the way every single part is telling that story, it's very much akin to Schubert telling a story, mm. very much akin to. Debussy painting a picture, an impressionistic picture for us. But I would say it's really very similar to the work that you do. Like you mentioned the seconds in a boy and a girl moving through. It, it is all very related just in different points in history with different musical conventions. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm humbled by that, even to be mentioned the same sentence as Bach. But yeah, I think I agree with, with the way you're talking about it, especially these, these word painting on a conceptual level, right? Where sometimes it takes an entire piece to paint an idea. And, and that I love, I love, love, love word painting. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to singing and choral singing is because you have this opportunity to paint with sound 
Well, I always think of it as, as illuminating the words with music, that you kind of make them glow. And I know from experience that, that the way it works for me is to choose the very, very best poetry, poetry that's bubbling with music already, and then just get out of the way. Just literally do what the poem says to do. And <laughs> honestly, I sometimes feel, um, I feel strange taking the bow uh, after a piece of music that, you know, I'll, I'll conduct through a piece of music and then I turn around and take the bow as the composer, but really the poet has done the vast majority of heavy lifting. You have a great knack for picking incredible poetry. Thank you. Thank you. That I, I, um, I spend a lot of time, a lot of time uh, sifting through poems and a huge part of it is just that it has to punch me in the gut. Like that's really how I know that I've got to read a poem and just be stunned by its truth. Um, I still, I, I dabble in writing poetry myself. I've written, you know, lyrics for a couple of my pieces. And last year I, I did a chamber opera version of a Christmas story called the gift of the Magi. And I wrote the entire libretto and it's all rhyming. And, and I love doing that. But when I think of the great poets and what they're able to do with just a few words, that, that they can mm -hmm. find such deep human truths in just a few words. Um, yeah, that's, that's the whole game. And there's these poets that I keep going back to, like E.E. E. Cummings, for instance, or Octavio Paz. To me, they're, they're just magicians with, with the way they write. Mm. What in your life, what are you most proud of? Huh. I sigh because pride is a funny word for me. Um, mm. it, it, you know, pride, pride has a, has so many different, it, it's a broad word, right? You have to one extreme, you have pride being almost narcissistic, but on the other side, you have pride being, a way of giving, you know, a, a, mm. of, of a certain accomplishment that's actually giving of yourself. And so more that's on nice. that side of the continuum. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's really beautiful that you, the way you say that, because I think for me, the, the, the creating music and making music is as far from that other kind of pride as I can, I can think. And I know from experience, the moment pride yes, it has in, to be right? You know, the, oh, oh this will dazzle or this will, then it just all falls apart. Like actually it's part of the discipline of composing year after year is, is letting go that sense of pride. But, but I would say that if I'm really getting into the weeds here, um, it, is that what I feel pride for personal pride is that composing for me is a, is a very painful experience. Every piece is excruciating and it's excruciating because I have to like an onion unpeel these, these layers of insecurity and, and guilt and, um, uh, fear. Like I really have to reckon with myself every time I'm the firstborn child. So I'm just naturally a pleaser. And the more success I've had, the higher the expectation each new piece has, you know, it's not just my next piece. Now it's the greatest piece ever written. And mm. I put this on myself. And so the pride I feel is that I sit down and still keep doing it. I keep like digging in the dirt and, and letting go that like trying to deal with fear and, and insecurity and just, just try to get to the truth of a piece. Mm. Yeah. That's 
that's, <laughs> that's me in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> no, that's, that's so important. Uh, what are your, some of your current projects? I know you've finished a couple of really big projects in the last few years. What What is the next Eric Whitaker project? I'll tell you, this is this is maybe the most COVID answer ever, which you'd think that during all this time, <laughs> I've got all of this free time to compose, right? But what I found is, strangely, the, the blood just isn't going to the muscle. I, I think it's partly because when... When I compose, it's never this abstraction. Like when I'm writing an alto line, I'm not thinking of, here's what future altos will sing. I can actually see the altos for whom I'm writing in my mind. If I'm commissioned to write a piece, I always go and meet the group first. And then I've got these people in my mind. And somehow because we're not singing or, or playing or performing, I don't have that picture in my mind anymore. It's become very abstract. Mm. And so writing music is, has been a kind of a strange thing. Here's comes the COVID part. but now getting into all these cameras and watching endless YouTube videos, teaching how to use the technology and the camera. I mean, the world school is now on YouTube. You can learn anything. Sure I, I'm, I think I'm going to make my version of a masterclass. Cool. Like, like an eight or nine or 10 video series about how I make things and the creative process and where that leads me. I don't know what it'll look like or how it'll sound or even if it'll <laughs> have any merit, but, but I think that's where I'm at right now. I'm really getting excited about the idea of building this video series. Um, so we'll see. Oh, I like that. I, I, I think there will be a lot of people who, who would love to have you as a masterclass teacher. And so <laughs> since you can't be all places at once, this is probably the next best thing. I, I hope so. It's, um, I genuinely, this, this is not just false humility. I don't know how much I have to say or have to give. And I've never personally taken a composition lesson where I learned about composing in a typical way. The, the best composition I ever had was, a uh, teacher I ever had was um, a man named John Corleano at the Juilliard School. And John would just take me through his own scores and we'd listen and then he'd stop and he'd just point things out. He'd say, did you see this? Did you see this? This is constructed, this is this and this. I can't tell you how illuminating that was for me. And so I want to find a way of having this, this dialogue with people who are interested, maybe not even in composition, but just, just curiosity, you know, like, like mm. just the creative process and what that is. Um, I hope I can find the language for it and somehow codify it into a video series. Oh, I, I have every faith that you'll be able to do that and quite successfully too. Thanks, Matthew. So, what do the words rise up mean to you and in your life? Wow. Do you ask this of every guest? I do. So, so Rise Up Chorus is the community chorus um, organization that I founded and of which I'm artistic director. And, and it, was, it was created very intentionally. And, and the focus is on the community. We all have things in our life. We all have difficulties in our life. We all have wonderful things in our life. And it's about coming together to celebrate those. But we use music as that thing that brings us together because music is so unifying. Singing especially is so human and so important and so good for the soul and, and good for the spirit and on, the, on your best of days but also on your worst of days. And so for all of us, we all have things in our life to which the words rise up have important meaning. And so 
that that's where the question kind of comes from. The so in your life, what what do the words rise up mean for you? First, everything you just said is so beautiful. It really resonates. For me, you. rise up. The first thing I think is Lin Manuel Miranda and Hamilton. I don't know if you're a Hamilton nut. Um, for me, Hamilton is the single greatest work of art in the past thirty or forty years. It's 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 staggeringly good on so many levels. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to it and studied it and poured over it. And in Rise Up, what it makes me think of is it's this this sense of um, it's a place in one's own world and standing up for oneself and and basic human rights. And I, I thought immediately of that Martin Luther King quote when you said rise up, which is, I'm paraphrasing, but the idea that peace is not only the absence of conflict, it is the presence of justice. And I love that. And I think, I don't mean just mean social justice, which is essential, but I also mean there's, there's a kind of justice, I think, that happens in the best choirs where every person is essential, where every person is treated as an equal, where they, everybody comes together to make something larger than themselves. And there's, there's this simultaneously stripping of ego and also uh, uh, um, a, a claiming of one's individuality in, in that moment. I've all, all, often thought that choirs are a utopian society. You know, it's like just points the way to the way we all could be. That first unifying breath everyone takes together yes. you know, at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's it. That's it right there. You breathe together. Anything is possible. So I guess that's what comes to mind. Mm. When you, you mentioned social justice, Martin Luther King Jr., in your musical creation process, where does does social justice lie? Do you feel that when you're composing that's something that you're thinking about or, or is it not? That's just another part of your life. It's a really good question because not only composing, but then extending to these virtual choirs that I make. Yes. My idea always is that a choir, like we said, is utopian, that it it's, it's, above politics it's above race it's above uh conflict even nationalism that that it points to this way of every individual being equal and coming together and making something larger than themselves however i'm hyper aware now in these times that that's that's a very privileged point of view with which i say that and that actually there are lots and lots of people who who are not going to get to experience that and so I don't know yet the way that I, I can, I, let's make, what I hope to do is find a way to integrate into my music a larger message, which is about there is injustice and it must change. I don't know yet how to do that. I haven't figured out an elegant artistic way to do that and actually have it make a difference. Um, but it's on my mind all the time. It's a, it's a really tough, tough thing to, to wrap your head around. I mean, I, I, I look in the world right now, the, the way things stand in the world right now, and there are some people during this time of seclusion because of uh, the COVID pandemic, there are some people that 
are so alone. They are so frightened and they are so scared. And there are others that are able to just kind of go along with their daily life as if this doesn't happen. That injustice alone is, is, is frightening. And, you know, I, I have a friend who always said the greatest injustice in any person's life is the circumstances to which they're born. <laughs> they have, you have no say over who your parents are, how you grow up what you look like, what color is your skin, what language do you speak, and what part of the world are you coming into the, to the world? I mean, that is a huge injustice in and unto itself. And there are some people in, the mus in our musical communities that they're making it their life's mission to make sure that music is, is equitable, to make sure that music brings about social change. And I'm trying to think, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of challenging you in a way. I mean, you've been so innovative with what you've done with virtual choirs, for example. That, that, that itself was, what was it, 10 years ago now or, yeah, or so? Yeah, 11 yeah. in March. Oh, my goodness. So over a decade ago now, you created this thing that nobody had any idea would exist, which now is sort of expected of all of us as choir directors. Sorry. <laughs> that, don't be. You gave people a way to move forward during the pandemic. So thank you for that. But how can we now move forward from that? Because even within a virtual choir setting, there are injustices there. Not having the equipment to create it. Not having the director having the ability to do... There are so... Where can we go next and how can we rectify some of these? That's such a good question. I think a lot about the virtual choir and especially like you said, because now so many people are making them because it's just the way we can do it. Um, that I'm so glad to hear that. It makes me excited, not on a personal level, but just for our shared art form that we're, that we're all keeping the flame alive somehow, some way. I worry that administrators and politicians see virtual choirs or virtual orchestras and bands and mistake them for the way forward that, oh, wow, we don't even need to meet. I've had letters like this, people saying their administrators are saying, yeah, we, we can just do choir from home next year. It's working perfectly. And it's essential to me that they know that while virtual choirs are beautiful, they're a different genre even than traditional choir, right? That, that they will never replace being together in a room. Some of the virtues of a virtual choir, I think, are profound. Uh, our last one that we made over the summer had 17,572 singers from 129 countries. That is just incredible. Right? Yeah. So, and so, overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, overwhelming. And you look at the faces and you realize, okay, that's what Earth looks like, right? That's just every creed and color and religion represented. And then, you know, we had over two dozen blind singers we had over a dozen deaf signers who joined. We had this really robust cystic fibrosis community. Cystic fibrosis sufferers can never be in the same room with another cystic fibrosis singer because of the, the strange fingerprint of their disease can be fatal. Wow. So the only way they can actually sing together is virtually. So all of that is virtuous and beautiful and points to uh, things that a traditional choir actually couldn't do. But at the same time, going back to your, your deeper point about injustice, it can only be so inclusive because then we start talking about uh, 
the profound injustice of income inequality, right? That there are people who just can't even cross the barrier of getting online and, and joining a choir that way or coming around and joining. And, and that is something has got to change. Something has got to change with, with, I'd say racial inequality and income inequality. Those have to be two of our major focuses going forward. I, I love that you challenged me. I'm, I'm looking for some small, tiny way I can help. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I'm hopeful that, that I'll stumble on something that, that can, you know, just in the tiniest way, uh, push in another direction. I hope so, too. And, and I'd, I'd love to brainstorm with you if you ever are looking for someone to bounce things off of. I'm, I would love to do that. So I would thank love you. that, too, Matthew. Thank you for saying that. Thank you, Eric. Are there any last words, any words of wisdom, I should say, that you'd like to impart on our audience? <laughs> oh, God. Um, uh, only to say this, that, um, that I'm assuming most listeners are like me in that this, this time of COVID has just been shocking. And um, I mean, set aside for the moment that Probably there are listeners you have who have had direct um, experience with COVID. Either themselves got sick or, or someone they know or love got sick, maybe very, very sick, maybe even died. So setting aside all of that for just a moment, just what happened to our shared art form, that something as benign and benevolent as singing could just have the light switch flipped off. And even worse, that we we're told early on and still that we're super spreaders that somehow just getting together and singing in a room can be fatal to other people in the room. I think had you told any of us this a year ago, it's too shocking to even imagine. Like, what? All people around the world will stop singing at the same time? This is, it's incomprehensible. And I don't know if it's words of wisdom, but what I would leave the listeners with is a reminder that it's going to get better, that we are coming back, that there is slowly a path through this and my personal belief is that when we get to the other side of this, we're going to enter a genuine golden age of singing. If other people are like me at all, they will never, ever, ever take it for granted again. Not even just getting together in a rehearsal, right? I, I feel the exact same thing that, that community choruses around the world are going to be yeah. bursting at the seams. And I truly hope so. I hope that people that never wanted to sing before all of a sudden have the urge because of how it brings people together, how it brings entire communities yes. together and, and for something so pure and beautiful and good. Not too many things in the world can, uh, can be attributed no, to that. No, Yes, exactly what you said. I couldn't agree more. I, I, yeah, that's, that's it. It's, um, well, we solved that. <laughs> I know. Well, that was easy. Problem solved. Move on. No, Eric, thank you so much. There you have it, everyone. Eric Whitaker, this has been such a pleasure for me. I have loved every moment of this conversation, and I feel inspired to do something greater than myself. And I am so grateful for that inspiration. That's beautiful. Me too, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Meet the Musicians podcast is produced by Rise Up Chorus, a community music organization whose focus is on bringing the community together to sing. For more information about Rise Up Chorus, visit us online at www.riseupchorus.org. 
This is Matthew Lapine saying thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to have you join us again for our next episode when we meet the musicians. <laughs>